and all those promises will be nothing but blah, 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 to coin a phrase. And the anger and the impatience of the world will be uncontainable unless we make this COP26 in Glasgow the moment when we get real about climate change. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who uh, is hosting COP26, it's being held in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, He was opening up the conference this morning with those remarks, and you can hear that's the context they're going into. Um, It's the 26th Annual United Nations Climate Change Conference. It's underway now. Uh, It's a two-week conference that brings people together. Essentially, it's the entire world. They're saying as many as 150,000 people might be there at some point over the next couple of weeks. You've got um, almost 200 nations that are signatories to the climate change plan with the UN. Uh, World leaders, of course, uh, an army of negotiators. You've got celebrities, activists, protesters, you name it. They will all be there. And as Boris Johnson says, this is a make-or-break moment. And a lot of the other leaders are saying the same thing. Now, it comes right on the heels of the G20 summit that just wrapped up in Rome. Uh, Leaders of the world's 20 biggest economies there struggled, though, to come up with a final statement that tried to balance the obvious climate change pressure that they are all feeling, also with the immediate pressure that they're feeling right now because of inflation and soaring energy costs. Those are the two competing narratives. Not exactly the kickoff that watchers of COP26 were hoping for, but here we are. Tremendous pressure to make sure that COP26 is more meaningful. So joining us now to give us some insight on what happens and what we might watch for is Gordon McBain, who is a professor emeritus at the Department of Geography and Environment, and he was also a Canadian minister's advisor at COP2, COP3, COP8, and the opening speaker in the scientific event held in Paris before the Paris Agreement meeting. So he's been involved with COP before many, many times. Delighted he could join us this morning. Uh, Mr. McBain, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Now, this conference, uh, you heard what Boris Johnson had to say to kick things off, calling it the most important COP conference yet, um, and meaningful progress is an absolute must. How intense is the pressure that these world leaders are feeling? Well, I think the pressure is quite intense, as you said, the and as the Prime Minister said, the numbers are showing very clearly that although the agreement in Paris in 215 was to you know, strive towards maximum temperature change of 1.5 or 2 is the absolute maximum. Uh, and the track we're on now, according to the best analyses, is about 2.7 degrees Celsius. And that difference is very large in terms of the global impact. And we should also note that when we talk about these global numbers, uh, they are the global averages, and Canada is warming overall about twice as fast as that. So when we say two degrees globally, we need four degrees in Canada and probably six or seven in the Arctic. And as you mentioned, you know, a lot of these numbers that they've talked about, they've talked about for a number of years, and now they're getting a lot of criticism as well, uh, that really they haven't taken enough action. I mean, that's part of what they're facing as they go into this. There's going to be a lot of protesters and a lot of people really calling on them to actually do something meaningful. I agree. I mean, well, as you noted, I was the, the minister's advisor in the Kyoto Protocol negotiations back in 1997. We came back with agreement. The parliament, act, well, in a sense, voted and formally agreed to it, but the overall Canadian uh, emission reduction targets were not, uh, well, they were substantial, but they were not met, uh, and that's been happening around the world. And result is we have a warming climate. We're now at over 1.1 degrees C warming compared to the reference level in the 1800s. And 
this is having impact. We're seeing increased numbers of floods, wildfires, as you're seeing in Alberta, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, storms and these kind of things, and the impacts on, well, quite frankly, small developing countries, particularly small island states with the sea level rising, is really horrific. When we take a look at... Um how these conferences work with that many people, you know, just armies of negotiators and lobbyists. Uh, having been part of these conferences before, what's the actual process like? How does any work get done? Well, my experience in it, which is relatively limited in that sense, but is that there is a few sort of important events that happen. I mean, quite frankly, when I was at the Kyoto meeting, I would have said, and as I was saying to the ministers that I was with back, you know, that about four days before the conference was due to end, is, is I don't think we're going to get anywhere. Yeah. The agreement just isn't there. But then the U.S. vice president of the time, Al Gore, showed up unannounced. I didn't know he was coming anyway. And walked around, held private meetings. I saw him pass by, held meetings, and there seemed to be an overall swing in interest and action. And the result was an agreement, which unfortunately was not fully, uh, in fact, you know, let's say, done by the countries that agreed to it. And a similar thing actually happened in Paris, as I understand. I wasn't there, but, you know, the uh, U.S. President Barack Obama's plane was already apparently at the airport, uh, charged up, ready to go, take him home, when he heard there was a meeting of China and a few other countries, and he just went and walked in. And... Made an impact. <laughs> yeah, so, so these things happen due to individual actions by big leaders, and uh, the overall, uh, it's hard to judge exactly how it happened. The, the because it's a huge political process, and various economies competing one versus another. And the reality is, we not only have to reduce emissions, which is very important, but its benefits are relatively some decades away. Whereas, and there's also the need to do adaptation, build our climate yes. resilient communities, which is essential because we're undergoing this climate stress now. Um, when we talk about that, we, we we do sort of, I mean, the adaptation is sort like like you say, we're at a point now where, um, okay, no matter what we do, we still have to adapt because the change has happened in many many different ways. So we don't hear a lot about that though. It's all about reducing emissions and carbon neutral and all that sort of stuff. We don't hear them talk a lot about adaptation. Do you think that will be a a topic of discussion in some circles there? I think it will be in some circles, but as you said, I mean, I think the reality is that they don't talk much about it. I guess in one sense, adaptation is a what you do in your own country, although there is a very important, there was a commitment made years ago, which for which has now been delivered, of a huge, I think it was $100 billion of support that would come from the G20 countries to the very underdeveloped countries who, haven't, who are being really impacted on this in horrific ways, as I said. Um, so adaptation is very essential, and you know, the climate system responds relatively slowly in the sense of it it's warming now is not due to what we put in last year of greenhouse gases but the total over the last hundred years mm-hmm. and if we cop, cut our emissions to zero tomorrow we'd still warm for at least another three four decades um yeah. much is being made of course about the fact that um china is not there at least the, the leader is not there. Same thing with mm-hmm. Russia, Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. Turkey. Some of the major polluters. So, I mean, when you're talking about global climate change, isn't it essential that these parties be involved in any discussion? 
Yes, it is. It's very essential, as you said. I mean, the, because of the lifetime of CO2 in the atmosphere, the climate system itself doesn't really care where it came from. Yeah. Within a two or three, four years or so, if you put the CO2 up into the atmosphere, say, from Canada or from China or from wherever, within three or four years, it's mixed around the globe. Sure. And it stays there for almost in round numbers a century. And the result is that we have to deal with this on a global basis. Um, there's also, you know, a lot of discussion, increasingly so in the last few years, of removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, technology solutions, you know, doing this, this thing in Iceland that seems to be in the media a lot. That may work, but I think we have to be very cautious in terms of jumping into that as the solution because the science that I know of hasn't yet shown that these things really work in a, let's say, in an economic and environmentally important way and can, can actually sustain that kind of approach. Um, and it's not just a pledge to, you know, reduce emissions. There's, there's a lot of money on the line here, too. Some of these big countries yes. talking about spending billions and billions of dollars in this. Yes, that's correct. It's not, as you say, it's the, the emissions... Uh, there's billions of dollars, but there's also in the support of adaptation in other countries, which I think is, I think I look on climate change as what I would call an international and intergenerational issue of equity and ethics. We need to deal with it on an international basis. We need to deal with it recognizing that it's not ourselves right now that are going to get the benefits. It's our children and grandchildren. And if we don't do things now and soon, then our children and grandchildren and all those around the world are going to see the impact even more strongly than we're seeing them now. And so it's a, an issue that we really have to look at in that very broad context. And that, quite frankly, politically, is not always an easy thing to do. No, certainly not. Um, so what, uh, what will you be watching for over the next two weeks to see that actual real progress is being made? What are sort of the indicators that we should be uh, aware of? Well, I think there's quite a few groups there uh, that will be reporting on it independently of governments, and I think it's worth to try and follow those organizations, the International Institute of Sustainable Development-based, well, its headquarters is in Winnipeg, but it has offices in Canada and other parts of the world, has always provided pretty factual and science-based reporting on a regular basis, and I assume they're doing that this year. I've, I used to be on its board of directors, but I, that ended around 2010. But anyway, there is that organization, and there are others of similar type that, um, that will credibly respond, report on what's happening. And we'll also be watching to see, quite frankly, usually here through the media, when it is those major heads of state yeah. come and do, and they, they will hold private meetings. Will be, which we won't hear about other than the fact that they were there and met. But hopefully there will be stimulation. I mean, Boris Johnson seems to be really pushing this, and yes. there's a certain amount of extra pressure on the U.K. being the host to make it even more beneficial. But the Europeans, generally speaking, have been, at least the Western European countries, have been more uh, progressive on this issue than other parts. So. Okay. Excellent insight. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. McBain. I really appreciate your time this morning. 
I really appreciate you uh, inviting me because it's a good way of uh, addressing the issues and, and hearing from it, and I'll hear listen to other people who you talk yeah. to to see about how this goes. Certainly. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you very you much. Bet. Bye-bye. That is Gordon McBain, who is Professor Emeritus at the Department of Geography and Environment, and as we said, he was a Canadian minister's advisor at COP2, COP3, and COP8. So he's been there. He's been on the ground. He's been in the boardroom.